This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Episode 182, Tom Jones, all about canyoneering. This episode of the Adventure Sports Podcast is sponsored by BiotropicLabs.com, custom formulators and sports performance supplements for active people like you. Designed for everyone from weekend warriors and outdoor enthusiasts to high-level athletes, if your body moves, you need Biotropic. Hello and welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is your host, Kurt Linville. Today is all about canyoneering, which is a, a wonderful sport that's done in the western U.S., primarily, I think, around Utah and Arizona. And it's a sport that uh, I think a, the, the people that have done it love it. The people that haven't done it want to know a lot more about it. So today, Tom Jones has agreed to come on and give us the intro to canyoneering talk. Tom has been canyoneering for 15 years. He has a company that manufactures and sells canyoneering gear called Inlay Canyon Gear. And you can see all of his uh, gear on the website, canyoneeringusa.com. He lives near Zion National Park, and he's here today to give us an education. So, Tom, welcome to the program. Thank you. So, Tom, tell us, what is canyoneering, I guess? The first question is, how is that defined? And then the second question is, how did you get started doing it? Okay. So, canyoneering is the uh, sport slash application slash um, fascination of uh, going down canyons that that we find here, mostly in the desert, and doing whatever you need to do to get through the canyon. Sometimes that involves pelling, swimming, sometimes some jumping, and sometimes it involves an awful lot of climbing. Sometimes it involves getting really scared, but basically you need to deal with whatever the canyon throws at you. So describe what a typical canyon is. I think some people who haven't seen the type of canyons that you're talking about, you know, they think, oh, the Grand Canyon, but it's not really just about the big monsters, is it? No, mostly we're we're doing small canyons that are at, well, not really a human scale, but certainly a lot smaller than the Grand Canyon. So usually you would find your way to the top by a trail. Sometimes there's a road up there, and you start in at the top and work your way down, and then at some point it gets technical. Um, we, uh, we probably have to build some anchors, um, rappel down some drops. There might be swims. There might be potholes you need to get across. Uh, sometimes the canyons narrow up a lot, a lot. Really, when I'm talking about canyons, I'm talking about canyons that are in rock. So it's kind of rock on both sides. Often there's there's trees and stuff there, but mostly we're talking through a kind of sandstone we have here called Navajo sandstone, which forms really nice slots. And then uh, a big problem can be that the canyons get really narrow and then, like, narrower than you are, and that means you need to shimmy up there and climb across the canyon. And that's generally where the canyons get the hardest is, is in this, this 
kind of climbing through the rock, through the canyon. So what's really cool about this is the way that the canyoneering incorporates so many other types of adventure sports. I mean, we have technical rock climbing, we have rappelling, we have um, working with water, right? Sometimes fast-moving water. Sometimes, yep. At times, it probably resembles spelunking quite a bit. You get in some tight spaces, and you're trying to work your way through almost like you're in a cave. Yeah, sometimes we call it... uh uh, caving with light. <laughs> Open-top <And>, caving. <laughs> yeah, and then the other thing is, that, you know, caving, generally you go down for a while, and then you have to climb the ropes to get back out. Right. Uh, we, we don't do that. So you come out the bottom, you might have to hike to get back out, but, but, but generally you, the technical part is over when you get out the bottom of the canyon. Interesting. So to me that's a lot more fun than, than jugging up the ropes. Sure. So how did you get started in canyoneering? Um, I got started, uh, uh, we moved, uh, I moved with, with the company Black Diamond that I work for as a product designer to Utah in uh, 1991. And we did a lot, of, there's a lot of climbing in Utah, and, but there's also the desert to go wander around in. And when you wander around in the desert for a while, you uh, get to a point where where the canyon narrows up and starts dropping, and you go, boy, if I had a rope and some other things, we could uh, we could go down there. So you know, after a couple times, then you come back with ropes and you go down there. And thankfully, I survived my first couple of trips like that when really had no idea what I was doing and uh, got really fascinated by it. I think the thing that's really really gets people hooked is that it's always it's always kind of an exploration um we do you know me and the people i run with do are out there finding new canyons so really honest to goodness exploration but also every time you go down a canyon it's going to be a little different and the places are beautiful the places are weird uh the challenges are yeah, are fun things to figure out, and um, just overall the experience is really great. Getting out there in the in the natural world and dealing with whatever it gives you. Mm, it really sounds like a ton of fun. I uh, I want to remind our listeners. I imagine a lot of them have seen the famous picture of the um, you know the the red sandstone canyon with shafts of light coming in. And the way yeah. that it's been shaped by blowing sand and rushing water and for eons. And that there have been several pictures of canyons like that that have really become popular. They've been in National Geographic. They've been all over the Internet. This is the kind of stuff you're talking about, going into places like this and maybe seeing it for the first time. Yeah, stuff like that, yeah. Oh, how fun is that? That's got to be cool. So how many days does it take to do a, a canyon trip? Do you plan short trips and long trips? and How does that work? Well, mostly... I mean, we're really talking about day trips. There are a few canyons around that take longer than that. Um, but part of the problem is whatever you bring with you, you've got to drag through the canyon. So even uh, long canyons we tend to do in a long day rather than uh, do it as an overnight. Mm, okay. So by not doing an overnighter, you get to leave a lot of gear at home. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So what kind of gear do you take then? Um, people would probably presume, okay, we're going to have ropes and repelling devices and some sort of anchors, and we're going to have 
food and water and but you know canyoneering requires some special equipment what kind of stuff are we talking about well the next thing on the list there is uh wetsuits so even though you know today it's going to be 100 degrees out in springdale but there's canyons in there with super cold water that are totally shaded so you got to bring a four mil a six mil wetsuit um and then we have specialized packs for the sport, and uh, we also have some anchor tricks. So the first thing you would bring is a bunch of webbing and some rings in order to set up anchors. And then we have some specialized uh, anchor tools that we use. We have one called a fiddlestick, which allows you to use a lot of things uh, for an anchor and then not leave anything behind. And then we also have a thing called a sand trap, which is a tarp that you pile sand on. And then you pull the string over here, and the sand dumps out, and you retrieve the the trap. So it, it, that's for specialized canyons where there's usually sand, but nothing else to use for anchors. Mm, that's clever. So describe the fiddlestick to us. I've not seen this device. Well, the fiddlestick, it's like a paint stir. It's a it's a stick, but it's made of uh, high quality engineering plastic. And the way you use it is you push your rope around a a tree or a rock or something, and then you tie a specialized knot and you stick the stick in there. Then you rappel down on your rope. You uh, tie a light cord to the stick and pull that out. The knot falls apart, and you just pull the tail of the rope from around the tree. Hmm. Um, you know, I've seen I've seen people do a double rope rappel where they'll just loop a rope around a tree and then go down two lines at once. This, I guess, allows you to go down a single rope rappel and get a lot longer rappel out of the rope. Well, what you describe, if you put the rope around the tree and then you pull the rope, you're you're going to cut the bark on the tree. Oh yeah. So we don't do that. You can do that on dead logs, and they also tend to be slippery if they don't have the bark on them. We try and leave the environment as as clean as when we found it. And these new methods allow us to go through the canyon and not leave anything behind, which which is good because that means the next party that comes through can have the the experience of the canyon in a in a clean condition rather than having webbing and anchors you know already established. Well, that's cool, Tom, because, you know, in the early days of climbing, people used pitons and stuff that they would hammer into a rock, and, and they had to leave all that stuff behind, and it became less and less acceptable to do that. And uh, over time, people have come up with all sorts of anchoring systems that are temporary that can be removed as you climb, but you can't clean your own route if you're rappelling down, and then you're at the bottom, and your gear's at the top. Yeah, and actually, that's a good analogy, because the thing that really revolutionized climbing to the to the modern version of trad climbing is that the gear that was made to not damage the rock also was a lot easier to use. Mm. So it made climbing a lot more accessible. And in some ways, our our thing is much the same has has some of the same attributes because these. Uh, these tricks, uh, the ghosting, we call it ghosting when you go through a canyon and leave nothing behind. Um, these ghosting tricks actually open up a lot of things that you can use for an anchor and make the whole experience 
in a way, easier and faster. Well, that's cool. So that even though you're leaving nothing behind, it's actually even a faster trip. That's surprising, but it's cool how the, the sports develop over time. Yeah. Everything just gets, I mean, all adventure sports are going through this. New innovations, new ways of doing things, better for the environment, but also better for the sport. So that's really cool. So how much climbing experience would you recommend before someone dives into a canyoneering trip? Um, climbing experience is helpful. Obviously, rope sport experience is helpful. Um, but there's, there's specific knowledge to know about canyoneering that is helpful. We have canyons that are easy if you're a canyoneer, but are going to be quite challenging if, if you're just a climber, if you don't know, if you don't have uh, canyon-specific experience. Mm, so it, it is its own sport then, that's what you're saying. Oh, yeah. And things like uh, here in Zion, we have a, a lot of canyons that have anchor set, um, you know, and they're pretty straightforward, rappel, walk, swim. So Zion is a good place for people to start, but when you get outside of Zion into more of the wilderness areas of, of, of Utah, then you end up having different challenges, including finding anchors or uh, more challenging down climbs, things that uh, people who have a background in climbing are not specifically prepared to deal with. Hmm. You know, the, what you just mentioned about the the sand anchor, and I, I don't know the specifics of what you call that. I've never seen it, but the idea that you can fill a tarp with sand, use it as an anchor, and then drain the sand somehow. Does the sand come down the, the canyon on top of you when you do that, or is it emptied some other way? Um, usually it empties most of the sand uh, where, where it was sitting. But, uh, yeah, it drags a little bit of sand. Sometimes it makes a very dramatic picture. Um, <laughs> of sand cascading with the with the trap it's called the sand trap a sand trap so there are lots of innovations that uh standard rock climbers probably wouldn't know about if they didn't look into canyoneering first well and our standard for an anchor to repel off of is very different than the standard that climbers have for an anchor to catch a fall with so our anchors tend we, we, we make a lot of anchors that are only good for 200, 300, 400 pounds. Mm. And climbers would just not consider that to be an anchor. Right. Well, and for the listeners, when you drop, you know, when you fall even a short distance onto a rope, the forces involved are really extreme. If you do the, the physics on it, there's a huge yank, and your body weight is multiplied many, many times over. But on a static rappel... Um, you're not yanking on it, so I guess that allows you to get away with a lot lighter anchor. Yeah, and especially we also use techniques that minimize the force used when you're repelling. Mm. So that may sound silly. You've got your body hanging on there, but um, there's different styles of repelling that produce less force at the anchor. So it's important to know those when you're going off of the marginal anchors. What is your preferred repel device? Um, we have some that are specific to canyoneering now. Um, there's one made by Pepsi called the Piranha, which is good. Uh, there's also two made by canyoneers, one called the Critter and one called the Squirrel. Those are both really good. They have some extra stuff you can do with them that you can't do with a regular repel device. Hmm. So a lot of people that have done repelling would say, well, I know what an ATC is. I know, I know what... Uh 
an eight ring is for sport repelling, but the stuff you're naming off there, they may have no idea what that looks like. So can you describe to us what these things are like? Well, they're, um, most of these are based on a figure of eight. You know, if you're a sport repeller and you're going down on two strands of 11-millimeter rope, you have a regular figure eight, and that works for that device. Then you go to what we repel on, which is a single strand of 8-millimeter rope, and that device does not work at all because it doesn't generate enough friction. It's just too fast. So these are smaller, more compact figure eights, and they also have horns on them, so you can do some wraps and you can rig it a couple different ways depending upon how much friction you need. Uh, Most of these devices you can quickly tie off and get both hands free in case you need to uh, climb out of a situation or deal with a rope snag or otherwise, you know, do some fancy stuff. Biotropic is a biological sports performance booster supplement created by Craig Dinkle, an Olympic trials athlete, to help him train at higher levels more efficiently in order to gain a competitive edge. All natural and safe, Biotropic packs your body with the highest grade quality of the B-Sweet vitamins, offers blood support, higher oxygen-carrying capabilities, an ATP booster, and vasodilation, which delivers more healthy blood content to hard-working muscles. Craig has the credentials to back it up. He twice qualified for the Olympic trials, set four NCAA records, and earned 23 All-Americans. Today, he uses biotropics to help him train in the gym, scramble up mountains, and to prepare for a six-month through-hike of the Continental Divide Trail. Athletes and exercise enthusiasts, check out Biotropic at biotropiclabs.com, where our listeners can get a deep discount by using the code ADVENTURE. Bentgate Mountaineering, located in Golden, Colorado, has been outfitting backcountry travelers for more than 20 years. The snow is melting and the crags are drying out. Time to break out the hiking boots, rock climbing shoes, and tents. Gear materials and designs are more evolved than ever. From the latest ultralight gear to the tried-and-true classics, Bentgate has the premier brands for climbing, hiking, and camping essentials, including Arcteryx, Hilleberg, Nemo, Western Mountaineering, and many more. Need advice on destinations, getting started, or on fine-tuning your quiver of gear? The Bentgate staff are all passionate adventurers who can give you the data and advice you need. Bentgate is also hosting numerous events and speakers this summer, so please check out their events page at bentgate.com for more information as well as to see their full product selection. I have a, a horrible story that, that would have really come in handy. Um, we were doing some sport repelling, and a girl started down on an eight ring and didn't put her hair up and got caught in the eight ring. She was So she's hanging by her hair, and so I grabbed a second rope and went down to free her up, but then I had to figure out a way to anchor myself long enough to work with her. I didn't have this device you're talking about, so there's no way to tie off. Well, I hate to tell you, Kurt, but there's always a way to tie off. <laughs> okay. Um, and one of the things, you know, things I, I used to climb, I climbed for 25 years before I was a canyoneer. 
So I feel good about slagging climbers. The uh, uh, a lot of it is in canyoning. We concentrate on developing skills when rappelling, and climbers kind of do rappelling as a very much a secondary activity, and don't take it seriously as as something that they need to develop the skills of. So, one of the first things we teach people when they're when they're canyoning, when they're rappelling, is how to stop and tie off and deal with the problem if they have a problem. Yeah, it's a good skill to have for sure. Well, for our listeners, will you kind of rewind for a minute? We dived in to some of the details, which paints a picture of the kind of things that you're dealing with with canyoneering. But I would like for you to tell us about a typical canyoneering outing. What is a day like where you go into a canyon? What do you encounter? You know, that sort of thing. Well, one of the things is that in each area in Utah has its own flavor of, of canyons. But uh, a typical day would, you know, start with an early start so that you can do the hiking part before it gets really hot out. Um, so a canyon may have a half-hour approach or it may have a four-hour approach. Uh, one we did recently, just a couple days ago, is, is here in Zion, and I was looking for a new way to get into the canyon because uh, the two other ways to get in both have problems. They're, they're a little messy. They run through some bushwhacking, through some roses. So we pulled out the GPS and followed this ridge down and got the first rappel in the canyon. There was a tree there with a anchor around. It was a pretty popular canyon. So we set up a rappel there and went down, and then you follow that for a ways. Uh, there's another 100-foot rappel. Uh, and then it goes into a, a narrow section where uh, there's a bunch of down climbs that are fun. Some of the people used to rope on those. And then we got to the next section where we're really committed to the canyon. And the sky, it, this was uh, last Saturday and there was some rain. The sky was, was looking pretty dark in one direction at that time, so... At that point, most of the people, we had seven people on that trip, and uh, two of us decided to go on, whereas the other five decided to hike out. There's a, a bit of a trail to get out of at that point. Then uh, me and this other guy kept going down. We have five rappels back-to-back. We did them pretty quick. We got through in about half an hour. And then, uh, unfortunately, at that point, that means you need to hike out. So we uh, hiked up the canyon. It took about an hour and a half to get back up to the top. So that was that's a typical, pretty casual canyon day. Mm. So you mentioned the weather, and I wanted to bring this up. People may have heard on the news that there have been some fatalities over the years where flash floods have come into these canyons. And, you know, I've been in canyons where I look up and I see debris that's 40 feet above me lodged in the rocks. And I go, wow. That means a lot of water can come down this slot. So tell us about that and, and how that weather plays into the sport. We have a saying. Our saying is uh, the canyon will be there tomorrow. Make sure that you are. Mm. It's rare that you have a storm come in as a huge surprise. So we have weather forecasts. People have phones. Even uh, looking at the sky can tell you about a lot about what's going on. Once you gain some experience with the area, we don't generally do canyoneering when there is weather threatening. Last Saturday, the weather was 
somewhat threatening, but but we chose a canyon that does not have a lot of flash flood danger to it. Okay. So this particular canyon, the watershed is has a lot of vegetation in it and is relatively flat. And the place where you would be exposed to a flash flood is is pretty short. Generally, when the weather's threatening, we just don't go. But there are canyons that are a big risk, and there are canyons where it's a little risk. And most of the canyons with a little risk, it's because the narrow sections where a flood would catch you are really short. So you can stop and make an evaluation before you enter that, and then move through it quickly, and then get out the bottom and away. That doesn't mean that you won't ever get caught by a, a storm and a, and a little bit of a, a flash flood. But the floods that, that kill people are are really rare. And also the, the kind of floods that are big and put in sticks 40 feet up in the canyon, those are extremely rare too. Often those are from a snowmelt situation rather than from a thunderstorm. So instead of a flash flood, that's just... So the river's running big, we know not to go. <laughs> yeah. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, or the, the snow is melting off. Yeah, you can't go in there right now. Why do the sport of canyoneering? What does it do for you? Well, I, I think the big thing is that it's always different. Every day out is different. Even canyons I've done many times. Uh, the light is different. The situation is different. Canyons also change. Those big floods move logs and logs and rocks and sand around and make the canyons uh, new again. I really like the technical challenge of getting anchors, uh, the physical challenge of doing the climbing through the canyons. Uh, but I would say it's mostly, you know, it's kind of unusual for an adventure sport. Maybe, maybe not, but that the the scenery is really uh, a very important aspect of it. Well, it seems like a very interesting way to encounter nature and a part of nature that a lot of people just wouldn't get to see otherwise. Um, if you don't get on the ropes and drop into some of these places, you just you can't appreciate what it's like. Yeah, uh, the crazy thing is the, the stuff we do here in Utah is called desert canyoneering. And it's pretty different. There's also canyoneering, which is done in the mountains, which are mostly stream canyons with waterfalls and, you know, water flowing through the canyons. They're almost like two separate sports, some of the same skills. It's still exploration. It's still everything's different uh, around the next corner. Um, you get to some crazy places. It's amazing to think in the desert that there are these places that are have freezing cold pools and uh, marvelous, mossy growths and uh, amazing, very subdued light. So a lot of it is the exploration aspect. It's mm. just great. I imagine a lot of our listeners have the same disease I do called wanderlust. I get out into to nature and I see something, and especially if there's if there's a hill to go over or a, or a rock face to try to see around, you know, you always want to know what's just beyond that point. And I imagine with canyoneering, man, that's got to be just a huge aspect of what the sport's all about. Well, and especially since you can't, from the top, you can't really see anything. So when when we're doing new canyons, you know, you you may walk the rim or get some glances into the canyon, 
but the only way to really find out what's going on down there is to is to rig up the rope and wrap down in and see what's there. Yeah, that sounds so much fun. So if our listeners would like to try canyoneering, you have advice for them? How does someone get started and get the skills they need to do this? Uh, well, first of all, canyoneering is limited to specific geographic places. So obviously Utah, Arizona, also in the San Gabriel Mountains of Southern California, there's a fair amount there. Um, there are guide companies that take people on trips, um, and that's a good way to start to get a feel for what's going on, and then most people should probably take a, a class to learn the basics of what they're doing. Uh, canyoning is also a social sport, uh, a team sport, so really the good thing to do as a beginner is to hook up with experienced people in their area. And there's often uh, online groups that, that help set up trips like that. Um, kind of uh, my first rule of how to stay safe canyoneering is to not be a beginner being led by a beginner. Mm. <laughs> yeah, good point. So how much experience do you think it takes before someone becomes fairly proficient? Uh, it varies enormously how fast people pick things up. We've had people who become pretty experienced canyoneers in, in six months. And I, I also know people who have canyoneered for five or six years who are still a danger to themselves and others. Mm. So, you know, it's really hard to say. Uh, there's a bunch of different skills you need to develop, and some people have a prof have a natural proficiency inclination for those kind of things, and some people just don't. Sure, and I know exactly what you're talking about. In in my sport climbing days, I had some friends who, you know, I knew if we got in a bind, they would somehow figure out how to save us, and I had other friends who would die trying to save us. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. and they might be the person that caused the bind in the first place. It's just funny the way that personalities are, and and different people operate different ways when they're when they're in kind of a, a challenging, tense situation with heights and ropes and those sorts of things. Yep. Yeah, it's it may not be a sport for everybody. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about your website and about your company. So you started Inlay Canyon Gear. Um, what about thirteen or fourteen years ago? Um. Yeah. Although. People wouldn't really recognize it as a company until about 10 years ago when we were actually started to make a profit. <laughs> okay. So for 10 years now, you've been selling canyoneering-specific gear, and you do that online and directly to, to retailers, right? And yep. what is your online website? Uh, it's Canyoneering USA, uh, which includes also kind of an online guidebook to a lot of canyons in Utah mostly. And also, I have a blog on there, so we have, you know, tales of going down canyons, lots of pictures for people to look at. Um, we have a little section on tech tips, give some basic uh, canyoneering skills, uh, plus the, the web store, which has a uh, bunch of, of my gear for sale and also other gear that you need for canyoneering. Mm. So if someone wanted to give this a shot to see if it was a sport for them, how would they get a hold of the right training and guides? Uh, part of where they live, but a great place to start is here in Zion. 
And uh, I, I used to do a bunch of guiding with a company called Zion Adventures. Um, they have a website called zionadventures.com. Uh, but there's there's other places around. If you you know Google up canyoneering and uh, guide, uh, or you can go to my website and hunt around. I know there's a place where I list the uh, guide and training places that that I have the most respect for. Mm. I keep rattling around in the back of my mind envisioning a trip and coming across water and we kind of touched on that you know you mentioned the wetsuits and having to go through water but um do you have to swim a lot of these canyons uh there's a lot of variation in canyons but yeah sometimes canyons have have swims most of the swims that you find in canyons would be in potholes and so they would be uh 10 feet long maybe 20 feet long Anything over 20 feet, we pretty much consider a long swim. Uh, longest swim I've done in a canyon, we uh, got out to this canyon on Lake Powell, and we actually swam for an hour. Wow. Uh, and part of that is that we knew the boat was down there somewhere. We were coming out <laughs> to Lake Powell to a boat. Uh, but the canyon was narrow for a very long time before we got to the place where it was wide enough for the boat to show up. Wow. So that leads into my next question about this. If uh, people wanted to try it, what kind of physical con- physical condition do they need to be in to be successful at this? Well, there are canyons that are physically easy, but in general it means pretty much hiking all day with the pack on, uh, doing some rappelling, some climbing. Uh, a lot of it is that it involves uh hiking in rough country. So hopping over boulders and, you know, doing short drops into pools and, and uh, some swimming. So all that, it, it tends to, to favor people who are fit, who, who are not overweight, uh, who can tolerate the heat, uh, and generally can, you know, move up and down pretty easily. Hmm. Okay, so it's... Uh you got to know what trip you're on if you're not quite in, in top shape, but it sounds like for people that are going into the more aggressive canyons, um, they need to make sure that they are physically ready. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So some adventure sports can be done by anybody, just at different speeds. Other adventure sports, you have to have quite a bit more training and fitness for, and it sounds like this is one of those where the training and the fitness can be paramount. Well, there are a few canyons that do not make much demands. But, you know, that tends to be the minority. Uh, most of the canyons we do, you pretty much spend all day doing them. Uh, people ask, well, how f- far is that? And the, the far doesn't really capture it. Mm-hmm. Um, we have, I, I did a canyon in the, in the San Juan range in Colorado with these guys that was the first descent. And we got out, we did a fair amount of hiking after dark. And we were hopping down this this river channel, and we were making half a mile an hour. Wow. And working really hard to make that half a mile an hour. Yeah, I can see that. I've done some off-trail in some of the, the creek bottoms in Colorado where it, it can be extremely technical and extremely slow-moving. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that.
Have you heard of the Sayuai Iris 4G Action Camera? It's Adventure Sports' first always-connected camera using mobile 4G LTE networks. Push a single button and you kick off a live stream to your friends, family, and fans so they can join you on your crazy adventures. See for yourself how it works. Visit live.sayuai.com and sign up for free. Follow some of their professional mountain bikers, skimboarders, motocross riders, and of course adventurers, and join in on the fun as it happens. That's L-I-V-E dot S-I-O-E-Y-E dot com. Never run out of camp stove fuel again. The 180 stove is a natural fuel stove that eliminates the need to carry heavy, bulky fuel canisters. With a generous 6-inch by 7-inch cooking surface, it folds away into a clean, compact, self-forming case that is small enough to fit inside your pocket. At only 10.4 ounces, the additional weight and space savings allows for other important items in your pack. Get more information at 180TAC.com and look for it in retailers near you as well as online. So, man, you have a lot of experience doing this, and you mentioned that you have some books in the works. I'm sure our listeners are going to want a, a resource where they can learn more about it. Tell us about your books. Yeah, about 10 years ago, I published a book, a guidebook for Canyoneering in Zion. So my next project is to be working on uh, coming out with a second edition of that. But um, we get the printer right now, which is about a... Uh, accident, uh, uh, tragedy, as the popular press likes to call it, uh, that happened in 1993 here in Zion in a canyon called Kolob, where uh, a uh, youth group was taken into a canyon when the water level was high and uh, two of the adult leaders drowned. The third Mm. adult leader was a little smarter and said, boy, it looks really uncomfortable to stay here, but it's better than dying. And uh, so he had uh, five kids, and they sat down and waited uh, four or five days for rescue. Wow. So that's, uh, that book is at the printer, should be coming out soon. It's a, it's a great tale of how not to do things, and that'll be, that's called The Kolob Tragedy. Uh, should be out in two weeks or so. And where will people find the book? That's up to uh, many retailers. We'll, we'll undoubtedly have it in REI and in most of, of my retailers, which are you know smaller smaller shops. And other than that, it'll be available on Amazon, of course. And people will be able to get more information on CanyoneeringUSA.com, I would assume. Oh, yeah. Yep. Very cool. And they can always buy it there. Right on. So that's that's out soon. You said how how long until it's going to hit the shelves? It's at the printer now, and I'm expecting to drive up to Salt Lake at the end of this week and pick up pick up the uh, boxes of books. Well, you know, we record these shows a few weeks in advance of when they're aired, ah. so it might be that by the time the show gets out that the book is available. So listeners, go to CanyoneeringUSA.com and check it out. That book may very well be available right now. Yep. Will you tell us a story that really hooked you on canyoneering, a day that you recall where you said, this is a thing I want to do more of? Actually, my uh, the first technical canyon I did, I was uh, a climber for 25 years and was kind of getting bored with it. 
So I took up paragliding, and then I crashed into a hillside and broke my back. Oh! I spent six months in the in the uh, on the couch, basically. Um, and one of the things that I did is I researched uh, canyoning and being in the desert. And uh, there's some books out about canyon and hiking that say, among other things, and the canyon is impassable from this point. So those are always intriguing. There's a canyon in the San Rafael Swell in the center of, of Utah, and I went and visited that wearing this uh, turtle shell brace for my back. And the the crazy thing about that canyon is that it narrows up and has a series of potholes, and it does not have any drop through that. So it's flat through this section with with pothole, 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 pothole disappearing out of sight. Wow. So normally when we deal with potholes, we have some height advantage to work with to get past them. So you can rappel down and you can throw things from above and get them past there to help pull yourself out of the potholes. This one was just completely flat. So, uh, you know, on this hike, I went and looked at that and was like, oh, I wonder how you get through that. And uh, worked on that for a while. Once uh, I was uh, out of the, the turtle shell brace and uh, and ready to, to do some things, I recruited a friend and we went up there and we figured out how to get through that canyon and, you know, had a great time. Uh, pretty crazy to go in there. You know, that was before I had any canyoneering type skills. Um, but... You know, we went in and we crossed these potholes and then we get to the next one. Oh, how are we going to do this one? And we'd figure something out and then there'd be the next one and and go through that. And some of those potholes had extremely cold water. This was this was uh, May in, in the middle of Utah. It was 100 degrees out and the water was freezing cold. Uh, at one place, we had to get up and get through this crack and I figured out we could do a, a pack stand where you take your pack and you and you wedge it into the crack and then you stand up on that to to squeeze through. Um, and then finally, you know, after all these swims and problems and everything, we pop out back into the sun and, uh, you know, just lay down in the, on the rock and get warmed up again. And I'd say that was the trip that really, really hooked me on, on canyoneering because it was just so much fun and so intriguing to find out what's around the next corner. Oh yeah, very adventurous and it challenged the the mind a bit too. Lots of problem solving. It sounds like. Oh yeah, yeah, and that's an aspect of canyoneering that I think is probably a bigger deal than we've really talked about so far. It, it's probably a lot of the fun is is you have a challenge. It's not like well we'll just use a rope. It's you got to figure out how to do it. Um, yeah, although there's an aspect to that, it is a team sport. So, you know, mostly we go out in teams of four or five or six, and everyone can contribute to that. Uh, you often have people there who are not very experienced and they're learning new things. Uh, and you have people like me who are really good at all the tricks. And uh, I, when we do those trips, I really like to let the people who are least experienced do as much of the work as possible so they learn, 
you know, how to do all these things. Oh, yeah. So they can go out and do their own thing, their own thing at some point. Well, that sounds like a ton of fun. I, um, my nephew, some of my, my kids' friends, and two of my children have all gone to the Outdoor Leadership Program. And as a part of the program, they do an optional canyoneering trip. So they've been able to go out and experience it. But I, as of yet, have not. So I keep hearing the stories, Tom, and I'm excited about it. I've got to make it out there and uh, get to experience what it is that you're talking about because it sounds like it's right down my alley. Really, really neat stuff. Yep, that's Super fun stuff, especially if you're comfortable with rope sports and, you know, being around heights and stuff. Oh, yeah. I also wanted to say a thank you to one of our listeners. Uh, Sven Silberschlag made the introduction, Tom. He sent us uh, an email asking if we could have you on the show, and I'm really glad he did. I've learned a ton about canyoneering today, and it's okay. it's nice to talk to one of the pros when you're talking about a new sport. So thank you very much for being on the show, and thanks, Sven, for the introduction. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Sven. <laughs> you bet. So once again, Tom, if people want to learn more, they can go to canyoneeringusa.com, and your company name is Inlay Canyon Gear. Are there other places that people could go to contact you or find more information? Well, a, a really good place, we have a social center that's called the Canyon Collective. So it's canyoncollective.com with none of that fancy spelling error kind of thing. Okay. Um, and that's a great place to connect with other people, both in your area and out here in the West, if you're, if you're unfortunately, are not located out here. <laughs> right on. Well, it sounds like such a delightful thing to do, and thank you very much for taking the time to give us an education today about canyoneering. Okay, thank you, Kurt. Oh, you bet. And to all of our listeners out there, as always, until the next show, make sure that you do get out there and have some fun. 